This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. I'm Patricia Murphy. Today, Georgia Republicans say they won't try to block the legislative redistricting session ordered by a federal judge that's set to begin later this month. We'll talk to State Representative Syra Draper about Democrats' plans for the special session. I'm Tia Mitchell, but even while the legislature looks at redrawing the maps, GOP leaders will appeal Judge Steve Jones's ruling and hope it's overturned. I'm Greg Bluestein. We've now had four plea deals in Fannie Willis's election interference case. But for the first time, we have a behind-the-scenes look at how one of those deals came together in a matter of just a few days. It was quick and dirty. I'm Bill Nygut. We'll tackle why Georgia Senate Republicans are grilling Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger about voting election security yet again. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Well, guys, we have a huge night at the AJC because AJC Films is becoming a thing. We actually have a film production group at the AJC now, and there is a real live film premiere tonight. Bill? Yeah, I'm I'm not planning to walk uh, the red carpet myself, but I know there's actually going to be one. It's a teal carpet, not a red carpet. Excuse me. Thank you very much for that correction. Um, But I expect we're going to see some of the real rap stars of Atlanta out there tonight. That's going to be thrilling. Yeah, well, that's because the film that's premiering is The South Got Something to Say. It is a 50-year look at the history of rap and hip-hop here and Atlanta's role in all of it, Greg. Um, now, speaking of rap, hip-hop, and style, who are you going to be wearing tonight, Greg? <laughs> I'll be coming right from my daughter's bat mitzvah uh, pictures at our synagogue, so I'll be wearing whatever I'm wearing. I'm supposed to wear whatever. I'm wearing Saturday for the services, but Tia, I'm really, <laughs> I think you'll be uh, taking my style up about 17 notches. I plan on wearing a sparkly silver dress. I do plan on walking the teal carpet and on my feet will be a matching pair of Air Jordans. Okay, I need oh to, my okay, gosh. Tia, Tia, I'm going to wear one of my pairs of Air Jordans too. We better coordinate. Are you wearing Air Jordan 1s? Are you wearing the retro 3s? What exactly? Jordan 1s. Jordan 1s. All right, I'll yeah, go with the match. retro 3. You know, let's throw out our entire photo shoot we just did and let's just go with whatever we're wearing tonight. Okay, I didn't understand about two-thirds of what was just discussed, but I do know that Tia Mitchell is the style star of this podcast. No offense to anybody in this room, including myself. Oh, Tia, we see you on CNN, lady. We see what you do. We see you. Um, Again, rent the runway. Rent the runway. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, this is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. We learned last week that the Georgia legislature will convene a special session on November 29th. That's after a federal judge ordered lawmakers to redraw the maps they crafted after the 2020 census. 
House Speaker John Burns told us yesterday that he thinks the judge will be satisfied by what the GOP majority comes up with later this month when they redraw those congressional and legislative maps. But for a Democratic perspective on the special session, we have State Representative Syra Draper on the program today. Draper represents the 90th district in Atlanta, which is Stacey Abrams' former district, for those of you uh, familiar with that area of Atlanta. She's also a civil rights attorney, a mom. And perhaps most importantly, Greg, she is one of your former high school classmates. <laughs> I used to drive Syra around town when I was a senior and she was a sophomore. And Syra, I think I convinced your dad to let you go to some party you probably shouldn't have gone to. Uh, that is correct, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's flat. We'll fast forward to uh, your actual expertise uh, here on the program, um, along with being a Democratic member of Congress, represent. I'm sorry, not member of Congress. I just gave you a promotion. Along with being a Democratic <laughs> member of the legislature, you have very specific expertise on legislative maps because you were once the director of voter protection for both the Democratic Party of Georgia and Joe Biden's 2020 presidential campaign. So you bring a whole lot of knowledge to this conversation. So Representative Draper, our first question, what do you see as Judge Jones's marching orders for the legislature and that lengthy, lengthy finding that he issued. Lengthy indeed, 516 pages. And I have to say, I love the order because it is so specific with its instructions. You know, it clearly lays out all the districts that have violated the Voting Rights Act. Um, and then it provides the remedy. Um, and, you know, it is very it's a very specific as to what the remedy is. Um, basically, there needs to be new districts that are drawn. Um, so where black voters in particular uh, will have a voice. Um, so, you know, one congressional district in the West Metro area, uh, two state Senate districts in the South Metro Atlanta area, two House districts in the South Metro Atlanta area, one House district in the West Metro area, and two House districts around Macon. Um, so that is that specificity is going to be really important um, as we get these new maps. Syrah, thanks again for joining us. It's Tia. I wanted to know, you know, the judge's order was very specific, but are you concerned that Republicans who are in the majority can create these new districts, but still not change the overall number, for example, of black members of the legislature or in Congress by, you know, also changing the boundaries of other districts? So. The short answer is yes, I'm absolutely concerned. Um, Republicans in the state legislature have the pen, right? They have the majority in the House and the Senate, so ultimately they will decide what the maps look like. Um, and they have an opportunity here, I think, to be transparent uh, and to meet the spirit of this order and provide Georgians a voice. Now, whether they are going to do that or whether they are going to play games with the map is to be seen. Representative, I want to follow up on that because we heard from Speaker House Speaker John Burns yesterday saying he expected lawmakers to comply with the judge's order. He said this right here on Politically Georgia on WABE. And there was a legal motion that came a few hours later, essentially staying, at least clearing the way for the special session to, to, to happen as planned. They're not The state is not abandoning its legal challenge, but is letting the, the special session to redistrict go forward later this month. So are you confident in the public remarks we've heard from the speaker and others so far on the Republican side? 
Well, you know, I, I take this, I did listen yesterday. I take the speaker's words at face value. I'm happy to hear that they intend on complying with the judge's order. Um, you know, of course, we saw what happened happened in neighboring Alabama, uh, where the order, the court order, wasn't complied with, um, and. In that case, the case went back to the the court and the court got to draw the map. Um, So I think Georgia is going to try and prevent that from happening. But I think there's a lot of wiggle room between complying with the court order um, and really producing transparent, fair and just maps. Um, So, as I said, you know, Republicans have an opportunity to do the latter, and I hope they will rise to that occasion. Representative Draper, it's Bill Nygut. Um, It was fascinating that uh, Secretary Raffensperger and his people decided not to try to stay the judge's order. They're going to move forward and have this special session starting at the end of November. The judge has said they must have a new map by December 8th. But before the, the show went on the air, um, we were all talking about how complicated all of this could become because Republicans are already planning to appeal Judge Jones' ruling. So I'd love to get your take on what could happen moving forward if they redraw the maps. Uh, the appeal is pending, but um, mm-hmm. the state will have to, uh, at a certain point, uh, print ballots, um, which could be over at a time when the uh, the appeals court could rule that Judge Jones stepped went too far. I mean, it all gets very complicated as we approach a May primary, doesn't it? it well, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, on that stay, so the state is not pursuing that emergency stay. You know, my understanding was that was somewhat of a political decision. There is another voting rights pending uh, here in Georgia that is supposed to go to trial this month. Um, and part of the state's arguments were they didn't need a full-blown trial uh, in, that tr- in that case because they weren't going to pursue the stay um, in this case. Um, so there's a little bit of political jockeying going on there as, as in addition to legal strategy. Um, but as you said, yes, they more than likely are going to appeal this decision. Um, and with most elections cases, it has to do with, with the biggest factor is timing. Um, so if they are successful with this appeal, that decision will likely come down well after we pass new maps now in November. Um, and the question will be, what does the appeal call for? Um, and w- how close is any final resolution to the next election? Right. So I see a case that they are successful in the appeal. Um, we may have to revert back to the map. We're going to pass new maps in November. If they're successful in an appeal, we may have to revert back to the map that we are using now. Um, In a very bizarre situation, we can see that we are too close to the 24 election. So we're going to use the new map that we passed now in November for 24, but then revert back to the current maps for the 26 election. Um, So we are really in uncharted waters right now. Um, And I'm not even going to get into the residency requirements, um, but people that are sitting in office right now or are running for office right now, we have a one-year residency requirement, at least in the legislature in Georgia. Well, what happens if you live in your district now, but don't live in your district a month from now because of the lines have changed? So there's all kinds of complications. Changes. Oh, my goodness. And it just highlights the fact that the people drawing the maps and voting on the maps are also going to have to live with the maps 
as are their friends and colleagues and um, allies in the legislature. So it you can just see all of the moving parts happening. Um, Representative Draper, lean on your background as a um, voter protection specialist. And based on the incredibly large increases in minority populations in Georgia since the last census, um, what do you think these maps really should look like, both at the congressional level and at the state level? Well, you know, I, I'm glad that you mentioned that because we have seen incredible growth in Georgia, especially over the last two decades. And especially over the last two decades, that growth has been attributable to minority populations. Um, but as you all know, we haven't really seen a big change in the number of black uh, elected officials in office. Um, so really, I think all Georgians believe in the fundamental truth that the people should be choosing their politicians, not the other way around. And we want a democracy and a process that reflects the voice of the people. Um, you know, right now in the state legislature, there's really we have 180 seats, for instance, in the House. Very few of those are actually competitive districts. Um, you know, I, I can count on maybe less than 10 competitive yeah. districts across the state. Um, and when that happens, you get elected representatives that don't have to listen to their districts. They don't have to listen to the people because they're going to win anyway. And that is something I think all Georgians uh, would want to see a change in. And Representative, I'll add uh, less, you know, just a handful of legislative districts that are that are competitive and not a single congressional district that is truly seen as up for grabs uh, mm-hmm. next year. I want to ask you about your approach to this uh, this upcoming special session, um, the Democratic approach, because a lot of this work does happens behind the scenes, right? There's 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 probably a team of uh, Republicans control the legislature. There's probably a team of Republican lawmakers that have already are already drafting potential maps, and oftentimes Democrats are in the dark about it right up until the moment they come out. So how do you prepare yeah. a, 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 as a party for really sort of the unknowable? Well, certainly Judge uh, Jones's order helps us, you know, envision what it is we would like to see. Um, but I would call on my Republican colleagues to add daylight to this process. I mean, they certainly, as you mentioned, they probably have the maps already or will have them soon. Why not release them well before November 29th? You know, we shouldn't be seeing these maps at the last moment. Uh, there should be an opportunity to see these maps, to digest these maps, um, and to give robust feedback on what Georgians actually want, right? And and an opportunity to amend those maps if necessary. Um, so I think that is something that we would very much like to see. Um, also, you know, if I alluded to shenanigans before, I don't know that we're going to see shenanigans. Um, but if we see districts being changed in areas of the state that don't, um, that aren't really uh, covered uh, by this ruling, um, people should know that it's happening because we want to hold our government accountable and we want to ensure that we are doing what the judge has asked us and no more to get a political advantage. Let's bring Tia in here because Tia, of course, covers our congressional delegation. And we know that those maps are part of the conversation as well. Tia, what, what do you have for Representative Draper? That's exactly what I wanted to ask, Patricia. You know, you mentioned that maps are already being drafted. I know Democrats are also drafting maps, not necessarily that Republicans are going to be eager to incorporate. But like when you look at this congressional district in particular, it says that, you know, black voters in West Cobb 
should mm-hmm. have a representative, but what would a, what would your ideal district look like? And what do you think that district could look like with Republicans having input? Well, you know, there are a lot of really good third party, nonpartisan organizations that are drawing maps, too. Um, in fact, if you read Judge Jones case, he he has those uh, maps as exhibits. Um, many of those maps are exhibits in the order. Um, and so, you know, just an overlay of what Republicans will propose uh, compared to what has been proposed by these nonpartisan orgs, I think will give Georgians a really good uh, sense of whether games are being played or whether we're trying to comply with the judge's order. Representative Draper, um, I just want to make sure that I understand something you said about the timing of uh, the drawing of the maps, submitting them back to Judge Jones, and then the appeal we expect will come from Republicans. Do you imagine that the 2024 election will be built around the new maps while an appeal continues to move forward? Because you suggested that we could have that happen, and yet if the appeal is successful, it'll be the 2026 election that will go back to the original map. Could you help uh, clarify what you see as the timing and all that? So maybe, maybe. There's a uh, principle in election cases called the Purcell principle. Basically says you shouldn't change election laws too close to an election because it causes voter confusion. So if there is an appeal, if it is successful, it really depends on how close uh, the finalization of that appeal is to the next election. If it's very close to the next election, they may just use whatever maps are standing at the time, which will be the ones that we pass now in November. Um, You know, if it's not close to the election, uh, then we may revert back. Um, But, you know, again, if a map is if, if the appeal is successful, um, we won't be using these twi- maps that we passed today uh, for the next decade. Um, so it's all about the timing. And I think that is why this is so complex and so confusing. Um, and, you know, frankly, I wish we had done it right the first time, uh, because when we drew these maps in 2021, there were a lot of people pointing to this and saying this was going to happen. We're talking to Representative Syra Draper, an Atlanta Democrat, who actually used to hold the same seat that Stacey Abrams and Bean Nguyen held in the state legislature, the Atlanta-based seat. She's also an expert on voting issues and redistricting. Uh, Representative Draper, this is uh, this is so fascinating to me. This this chaos, I guess, is is, is really what we're seeing because we have we've reported the Atlanta Journal Constitution about the scramble that is already underway for folks who are jumping into races that are deep red seats. You know, some of these races we've seen. Um, that, that Democrats are getting into are so safely Republican districts that no Democrat even bothered to run last last year or in 2020, uh, all in anticipation of a ruling shaking up, you know, the northern metro Atlanta suburbs and the western metro Atlanta suburbs. Can you talk about, as a lawmaker who, I, I don't know if your district will be will be affected by this, who knows, but as a lawmaker, what you're hearing from your colleagues about the uncertainty going forward um about how their districts could line up in just a few months. Yeah, I mean, especially, again, as we get close to this residency deadline, um, it really has people shaked up. I mean, we have some really strong Democratic candidates that have jumped into races uh, that Republicans cur- where Republicans currently hold the seat. Um, and this redistricting process may make those seats more competitive, um, but it also may, you know, they might get drawn out of those districts. Um, so there's a lot of 
unpredictability uh, in this entire process. Um, Representative Draper, uh, you talk about the confusion that we could see happening over the timing of the redrawing of the maps. There's another complication in all of this that I'd love to hear you address. Republicans will readily acknowledge that they drew maps that would give them a partisan advantage, which we know the Supreme Court has said is perfectly legal. But of course, the Voting Rights Act um, it, it, which is what Judge Jones uh, made his decision based on, said you can't draw maps based on racial uh, lines. How do you counter that? How do you parse that as you try to draw new maps? Right. And that is really complicated. You know, sometimes it's very hard to disentangle partisan gerrymandering from racial gerrymandering. Um, but I would encourage anybody that has that question to take a look at Judge Jones's order. I mean, he really does go very deeply into this issue. You know, I, I think in part uh, because he expected there to be an appeal, um, but it is often difficult to tell. Um, but, you know, what we have seen in some of our the district that he has identified as violating the Voting Rights Act is you see a lot of what we call packing and cracking. So either putting a lot of uh, voters of maybe the same uh, demographic into uh, a certain uh, district so that they don't have voting power across multiple districts um, or cracking a district where you divide uh, certain centers so that there's not a majority uh, of a particular demographic of voters within a certain district and they can't be they can't vote their uh, candidates choice. Um, so we expect to see a lot of transfers there. And, you know, one thing I wanted to note with all the districts that the judge has identified it doesn't necessarily mean that those districts are going to flip from red to blue or blue to red. Um, but what we do expect to see is all of those districts will become more competitive um, and hopefully will align closer with the values of the people who live in those districts. All right, Representative Draper, one more question. Take us inside uh, the Democratic caucus right now. We have this special session starting um, at the end of the month. What will y'all be doing between now and then? Are are y'all going to be meeting? Do you know, are you drawing your own maps? Are you going in with a strategy? Tell us what to expect from the Democrats once this gets underway. Absolutely. So we have been thinking about this for a long, long time, uh, well before this order came down. We have been preparing for this moment. Uh, we have a very good idea of what we would like to see and what we think would be fair. Um, but again, this shouldn't be a deal that is um, come to behind closed doors. Uh, we need transparency over this process. And so we need our Republican colleagues to step up. Um, and if they believe they are creating a map that complies with the law, uh, there shouldn't be any issue with re releasing that to the public in plenty of time for feedback and public comment. All right. Well, Representative Syra Draper, thank you so much for joining us today on Politically Georgia. We will be following you and your caucus as that special session gets closer. And when, so we come, uh, and when we come back, an exclusive from the AJC's Breakdown podcast as we get a behind-the-scenes look at how one defendant in the Trump trial arrived at a plea deal with prosecutors in just a matter of days. Hip-hop is a product of Black people. It's a product of Black song. 
and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets this... We think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. Well, we heard an incredible interview yesterday that our colleagues Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman featured on the AJC's Breakdown podcast. They spoke with Frank Hogue, one of Jenna Ellis's lawyers in the Trump trial. Ellis recently arrived at a plea deal with prosecutors, which Hogue called a quick and dirty process that happened in just a matter of a few days. Tia, this was really quite an incredible interview. I don't know if our audience has had a chance to listen to it. This is Frank Hogue talking about um, this came together very, very quickly. They had a plea deal on the table. He also said that the plea deals of Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbrough really created a lot of momentum for Jenna Ellis and her attorneys to feel like it was time for them to get in there and think about a plea deal as well. Yeah, I thought it was so insightful. Number one, kudos to Tamar and Bill for getting Attorney Ho to come on and be so transparent, so just open about a process that most of us don't get to see, you know, any defendant in any case. And then on top of that, I thought it was interesting that attorney Hogue was like, I'm not naturally inclined to like defend President Trump or those who are aligned with them. Um, pretty, um, liberal person. Um, but the, you know, being a criminal defense attorney, he saw the ability to kind of weigh in on a, on a big case that had a lot of consequences. And so it was just so interesting to hear his perspective. Tia, we've got that audio right now. Here it is. And I think what really accelerated it was um, Powell and Chesbro falling as they did right after one, right after the other on the eve of trial. Um, It looked like timing was of the essence for us. Greg, we also heard from um, Mr. Hogue what it was like to be in that room with prosecutors as they were going back and forth about the plea deal. And uh, Fannie Willis was not there. We do know that. But he said that the other members of the prosecution team, his, his words were they were exceptionally kind to us. Yeah. And he wouldn't say who came to who first. He did say it took him about, what, a couple of moments to turn down a plea deal involving racketeering charges. But as these discussions evolve, the deal, in his words, became more palatable. Um, but what's so fascinating about this interview, Patricia, and I hope that all of our listeners tune into the Breakdown podcast to listen to the whole thing, he was talking about his, 
his struggle as a lawyer, yeah. you know, to deal, to come to grips with this because he knew it was a great deal for his client. This is what Hogue said. It was a great deal for his client. Um, but as a lawyer, he's nearing retirement. He only has a handful of cases left. He was so fascinated with this unprecedented case. He was doing all this intense legal work. And part of him, I think, wanted to continue bringing this case because it, it opened so many legal doors. <laughs> and we should point out, this is far from his only high-profile yep. case. He and his wife defended uh, Gregory um, McMichael. Uh, McMichael in the Ahmad Arbery uh, case. And it was another example where he may not have agreed with the cli- his client in any way. How could you agree with someone who has shot and killed a, 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 a black man out on for a, a run? But but he he's a lawyer. He's a defense lawyer and he loves the process. But at the same time, though, he's a part of the trial of the century yes, is exactly. what we've been calling it here in Georgia. <laughs> and you're here and this could be going on for months or years. And then you, but you have to do what's best for your client. He <laughs> yeah. had to. He had no choice. But gosh, that must have been a, a kind of a Sophie's choice in that moment. Yeah. Were you fascinated by his talking? I, uh, Bill Tamar asked him about what Jenna Ellis's plea might mean to Rudolph Giuliani, right? And he had an interesting answer to that, I thought, Patricia. That's exactly right. He said, you know what, Rudy Giuliani should be worried. The question was, should he be worried about Jenna Ellis? He said, well, he should be worried, but not because of anything specific that Jenna Ellis is going to say. He should just generally be worried because of his role in all of this. I think he should be, but not necessarily because of Jenna Ellis. Um He's all over this case. He's very intimately involved in much of it. And I think there there's enough for uh, Mayor Giuliani to worry about that wouldn't have anything to do with Jenna Ellis. I mean, she she wouldn't be a help to him, I don't think, um, if she was to be called as a witness. But... I think his troubles extend far beyond her. Yeah, just uh, the implications for this. Look, prosecutors always talk about this sense of momentum in a legal case. And right now we're seeing it in in real time with the plea deals for Cindy Powell with Kenneth Chesbrough kind of setting the stage for this Jenna Ellis uh, flip, uh, this plea deal. And, you know, he also talked about the likelihood of other plea deals coming down the down the road. And we know active with the AJC has reported uh, as well as other outlets that there are active discussions in the prosecutor's office about others. You know, we've talked about this on the show before. Um, people always say, Hey, well, why is, how is Fonnie Willis plan to bring 19 defendants to trial at the same time? That was never the plan. Tia. Yeah. I thought from that clip you just played, what Hogue said of Giuliani, he's all over this case. Yes. You know, that, there are so many different aspects that Giuliani's name keeps coming up. And this is from a guy who had to immerse himself, you know, in that interview. He talked about the fact that his practice is winding down. He only has five cases left. So he was able to literally spend every day on research on behalf of Jenna Ellis. So for him to say Giuliani has a lot to be worried about, not just Jenna Ellis. I mean, to me, that's very telling, very surprising. Um, we know that just like a lot of these co-defendants who 
are striking pleas, not only because they kind of are starting to see the writing on the wall, but making financial decisions about what they can withstand in a trial. We know that Rudy Giuliani has cited some financial difficulties. So it makes me wonder, um, as, as we know, Fonnie Willis is looking for the big fish. Giuliani would be one of them. You know, the one thing um, that Hogue simply would not speak to that I thought was fascinating was whether he approached the prosecutors or they approached him. And the reason I think that is so interesting is, of course, um, we've talked on the show about the possibility that uh, Fonnie Willis and her team have picked off defendants one by one and, and suggested it's possible They've gone to the defendants as they try to build a ladder up to the big fish. Unfortunately, Hogue refused to tell uh, 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 Bill and Tamar who went to who in this case. Yeah, he also said that he was not cooperating with any of the other defendants. There is no cross uh, conversation between the legal teams of these various 19 people. And so he said he didn't have any insight into whether others are have gotten a plea or were about to take a plea. But once those really those first three came in, he said, you want to get in early enough so that you have something to offer prosecutors and then get the best deal for your client. I thought also something that was fascinating is um, what Shannon McCaffrey, who is the editor overseeing all of our coverage, she is also a member of that Breakdown podcast team. And as a part of the podcast, they offer a lot of legal insight as well. And so she spoke about that really extraordinary moment that Jenna Ellis addressed the court. That's actually part of something called the right of allocution, when a uh, defendant can speak directly to the judge. And that was not a part of the of the same requirement that Jenna Ellis and all of these others write that letter of apology to Georgians. We keep getting emails from uh, readers to say, when are we going to see those letters of apology? We do not know. We will tell you the minute we see them. But Greg, I I thought, and also Frank Hogue thought, that Jenna Ellis really did a lot of good for her own kind of standing in the future by giving that uh, that apology in open court when she knew it would be televised as well. Yeah, and here's Hogue talking about how that public apology was was Jenna Ellis's decision. As you know, it ends with the, the statement, and I now take responsibility before this court and apologize to the people of Georgia. So it, it's, in essence, the apology that was a, a requested as the part of the plea, though she did not have to say anything publicly, but she chose to. And I thought it was a good move. I think it was one of the more dramatic moments so far of what we have called the trial of the century, the, the trial of the millennium. I don't know what we'll call it, <laughs> but, but uh, that heartfelt, tear-filled uh, uh, apology that's so different than what we've heard that the other uh, co-defendants who have, who have now taken plea deals have, have said publicly, you know, we, we, we've got a report that, that one of them, that Sidney Powell kind of did a handwritten letter and just kind of moved on. And we've also heard from Jenna Ellis, on her radio show, basically continuing to distance herself from Donald Trump and his allies and saying that she would even support 
uh, Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, rather than Donald Trump in 2024. Yeah, that's exactly right. She now lives in Florida and she is um, working now as more of a public personality on the conservative right um, rather than an attorney. And once she had got kind of swept up on in all of these legal challenges, you could tell that her legal future might be seriously compromised. But by having that public apology, it does sort of let the public know where she stands in all of this. Um, Tia, another detail that we learned um, or that was really mentioned specifically in that interview was that Jenna Ellis did not plead to the RICO charges. None of these defendants have. So they have pled guilty to the smaller, more narrow pieces of this case, but not to that overarching accusation that Fannie Willis is making and still has to prove in the uh, days and months to come. Right. And that's kind of to be expected because the RICO charges were the most serious charges that carried the biggest consequences if they were to be found guilty. So, again, part of for both sides, part of reaching a plea agreement is kind of finding a place where you can meet in the middle where the prosecution still believes there's some level of accountability, but the defendant feels that it's a better scenario than risking it at trial and facing worst case scenarios. So we know that on the right, there have been some criticism that see these RICO charges aren't sticking and that's proof that Fonnie Willis's case is weak, but um, the, the plea, um, the plea deals aren't where we should gauge whether the RICO charges are, are going to be able to stand up in court. That will come if and when any of these defendants facing the RICO charges actually go to trial. I, I thought another thing about the Jenna Ellis statement, tearful uh, apology, was um, unlike, again, Sidney Powell, uh, Kenneth Chesborough, uh, the sincerity of that, I thought, came through. We talked about that at the time. But it also suggested you get in, you get in bed with Donald Trump and, you know, how many people's lives have been turned upside down? I was looking, there's a book based on that, essentially, and I couldn't find the title of it, but it's something like, uh, you know, everything Trump touches turns bad somehow. And Janet Ellis is a perfect example of that. Yeah, there's a new uh, Trump book coming out by Jonathan Carl, who's the ABC News yeah. White House correspondent. And the title of that is Tired of Winning, <laughs> which really says a lot about where the Republican Party is today. And a lot of those uh, Trump defendants, as you said, Jenna Ellis, made it very well known that uh, she was not getting any help with her legal yeah. uh, battle, not any help with her legal bills, um, really was kind of out there on an island by herself. And so this was what she and her attorney decided uh, was the best course for her. Uh, Bill, uh, Greg, what do you think is the last thing that we're going to hear out of this case until we see more developments? Well, we have seen this sort of lightning quick string of plea deals, and there's still a, more than a dozen defendants. It was the Trump 19. What is it now? The Trump 15. Um, so there's still 14 other co-defendants of Donald Trump. Uh, we, we we can only assume that Fonnie Willis, of course, is going after Donald Trump, but also some of his top allies like Mark Meadows and Rudy Giuliani and others. But um, Jenna Ellis, Kenneth Chesbrose, uh, Sidney Powell, those are those are big names. And so we could still see, as we indicated, uh, as even Hogue kind of indicated, 
um, that there are a number of other negotiations that are going on behind the scenes. Yeah, we certainly know there's a whole lot going on that we don't know about. What we do know about is that there is still a presidential contest underway. Uh, We continue to see polls, even a poll from CNN out this week, that Donald Trump is the runaway favorite for the GOP nomination bill. South Carolina voters have him up way over 50%, even with their own former governor and their own current senator running against him. Um, None of these cases seem to be bringing Donald Trump down to earth. No, which reminds us of the statement that uh, Donald Trump made after he'd been indicted three times with the Fonnie Willis indictment he knew still to come. He said, one more of these indictments and I'm a, I'm guaranteed to win the White House next November. He's very smug about how popular he continues to be with his voters. And for our listeners, we have some news coming out next week. We should have the latest Atlanta Journal-Constitution UGA poll out with the latest glimpse of how likely Republican primary voters uh, are, are, are viewing this upcoming March 12th primary here in Georgia, but also some head-to-head hypotheticals involving all general election voters. So it should be really fascinating. As a reminder, the last AJC poll that came out a couple months ago showed that Donald Trump was about 57% of the vote. I thought one of the most interesting things that we heard yesterday from David Challey and CNN's political director, of course, was on our show, was when he said of the states that flipped for Biden... In 2020, the state that many Democrats are most worried about going back the other direction is Georgia. Tia, that absolutely caught my attention because all of us in this room know that Democrats had focused on Georgia, that they have been spending money on Georgia, that they're going to spend money on Georgia. But it's it did seem like news to me that they are they are very worried about Georgia of all states slipping through their fingers next time around. Yeah, and I think it makes sense a little bit because because Georgia is the newest of the battleground states. And so in prior to that, Georgia was considered red. And there's always been that concern whether this lean towards becoming a purple state is just something temporary that has a lot to do with the candidates on the ballot or whether Georgia is truly the swing state um, along the lines of a Pennsylvania and a Arizona and a Michigan. So, you know, there were some tests in 2020 and 2022 with Warnock on the ballot statewide. Um, but Warnock was the only Democrat to win statewide in 2022. So a lot of questions still remain. Okay, a lot of questions and a lot of time until that election. And we'll be here for all of that, as everybody on this program knows. Well, this is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. No media organization in Atlanta swarms politics like the AJC. We produce this podcast and the Morning Jolt newsletter, and now we have a new Politically Georgia PM update newsletter. Make it your afternoon appointment to get caught up on what's really going on. You can get it in your inbox for free every weekday afternoon. 
Just go to AJC.com slash politically Georgia newsletter. That is all one very long word, and I'll spell it out. AJC.com slash politically Georgia newsletter. GOP senators are taking on Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger again over Georgia's voting machines. This week, senators held a hearing to push for the state to immediately install a software update on thousands of voting machines across the state, something that Raffensperger has said won't happen completely until the 2024 elections are over. Greg, we are back to the scenario where elections are becoming political. We've never left that space, but this is sort of an intensifying focus of those GOP state senators who have been in a long-running feud with their own Republican, Brad Raffensperger, for, um, I would say, going on years now. Yeah. Tell it, Bring us up to speed on what's happening right now. Well, first, yeah, this is a flashback to 2020. First, uh, you know, just a quick note about the actual process of updating these election systems. This is not like updating your iPhone overnight. Um, th- this Officials say that the software they're piloting in a handful of counties is secure, but none are connected to the internet. So you can't just push a button. You've got to go manually update more than 40,000 pieces of equipment. So there's no quick fix here. But to me, this reminds me of that moment six days or so after the 2020 election when we had both then incumbent Republican senators, Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue, both basically call for Brad Raffensperger's ouster. Uh, There's still the significant block of Republicans who blame him for Donald Trump's 2020 defeat. And I think this is going to help shape not just 2024, but frankly, 2026, as we see high profile Republicans in the state Senate and beyond continue to sort of scapegoat scapegoat Brad Raffensperger uh, for Republican problems in Georgia. Yeah, the elections are the issue, Bill. What's really fascinating to me about this is you had Sidney Powell. Kenneth Chesborough, Jenna Ellis, to some extent Scott Hall, although he's a little bit more marginal on this side, basically having to acknowledge that they uh, lied about the election being stolen. So you've got the Fulton County uh, case going on, conspiracy case going on, with admissions that all of this was made up, and yet these state senators are still uh, concerned that the election probably was rigged and they want fixes. Well, and Sidney Powell pled guilty to breaching yeah. Coffee County's yeah. voting machines. Now that was done not through a through kind of a, a an unknown breach. They actually walked straight into the Coffee County yeah. Elections Office. Tia, what do you make of all of this? We're back to elections being political, right? And I think Greg made an important point about Secretary of State Raffensperger become kind of becoming kind of a scapegoat for those Republicans who were unhappy with the outcome of the 2020 election, even though one of their own was in charge of the election, Secretary of State Raffensperger, they basically have accused him of basically doing Democrats bidding. And um, Greg mentioned former Senator Leffler. I found it interesting this week, she through her greater Georgia um, political group has ratcheted up her criticism directly of Raffensperger. She released a statement earlier this week that said, um, in part, voters are entrusting our elections to a secretary of state who has spent more time glad handing liberal elites and attacking conservatives as, quote, election deniers than addressing legitimate security issue. And to me, like, that those are those are pretty harsh words from Republican on Republican. And again, 
from a former U.S. senator to a current secretary of state. Mm -hmm. And and a a couple of points here. Um, And Tia is exactly right. I mean, look, uh, Kelly Loeffler is a likely candidate for some sort of higher office, governor, senator in 2026. Brad Raffensperger might be as well. But either way, Kelly Loeffler sees an opening here to continue to uh, to energize or rile up or however you want to put it, uh, Donald Trump's most fervent supporters. Also, though, Secretary of State Office has fought back vigorously. Gabe Sterling held an event yesterday basically saying that uh, these senators, these people who are pushing this narrative are some of the same people that were promoting election fraud lies in 2020. And, you know, we were talking just a few moments ago about Fannie Willis's election interference case. Remember, some of the defendants in this case uh, were also implicated for their remarks that they made before legislative hearings back in 2020. Rudy Giuliani, full, full with lies about the election, um, while several of the senators who were behind those hearings were also involved yesterday in this call for upgraded uh, elections equipment. Yeah, and Raffensperger has said that he fills the requirement to travel throughout the state and occasionally across the country to say definitively that Georgia's elections are trustworthy, that the last election was not stolen, and that he has full confidence that the next election will not be stolen. Of the voting machines that need software fixes, election officials tell us there are 40,000 voting machines that needs to be updated. And because they're not all in a central server, part of that is an election security measure, We are talking, Greg, about an immense amount of labor that would go into it. But right now they are piloting those uh, changes in some of the municipal elections coming up. Yeah. And there was frustration from Republicans yesterday, Republican senators at this hearing that Brad Raffensperger wasn't there himself. They had accused him of glad handing donors all over the nation. He was at a Rotary Club in South Georgia. So a lot of, we've seen him, we have, we were at a conference in, in, in Chicago. We've seen him out and about throughout the nation, but his strategy and his really his 2022 election strategy was more focused on going to Rotary Clubs, key clubs, different various civic organizations around, around the state rather than grassroots Republicans meeting so much where he was already sort of painted as this enemy. Yeah, Tia, Raffensperger has told us that he does those meetings and he makes that case because he knows election integrity is on the mind of Republican voters. And the reason that's happening, he said, is because a lot of Republicans in this state lied about the last election. And that's the reason they don't have faith in the system. Right. And also, you know, some of these same Republicans criticizing Raffensperger for going on national TV haven't seen a Fox invite that they didn't (laughs) want to accept, you know, so... Uh, But I also want to make sure that we point out when it comes to updating these machines, the Secretary of State's office has said that even without the updates, that the machines are still secure, that these updates are not essential to running a fair election in 2024. And that's something, again, we're seeing from some Republicans who are maybe not being as uh, exact in their language about the need for these updates right this moment. And and again, these are security updates there. The the machines do need them, but what Raffensperger has said is that um, even without having them, it's not going to affect the security of the election. Yeah, but Bill, we have seen some reporting that um, in kind of a lab environment, these 
machines could be open to vulnerabilities. Yeah, no, I do think that that has given an opening to those who believe that there must be more secure voting machines. Now, the Secretary of State's office contends and has contended numerous times that, as you point out, Patricia, that is a laboratory environment that in the real world there's never been any ability uh, to or, or evidence that people can actually breach a machine to flip votes, which, of course, is what some Republicans have contended. But if you, if I could add, if you don't mind, um, you mentioned Coffee County uh, and the election machine breach there. I did not know until I read Mark Nisi's piece uh, in, in the AJC uh, that <laughs> the reason Sidney Powell uh, was ordered to pay a $2,600 fine when she took her guilty plea was because that's what it was going to cost Coffee County to replace the voting machines that her a conspiracy uh, uh, friends had broken into trying to prove there was, uh, you know, something wrong with <laughs> the Dominion machine. Bill, you're shortchanging the state by a hundred bucks, 2,700. Yes. <laughs> and that's just a down payment. They're, they cost more than that. Yeah. And it's meant to compensate taxpayers for the cost to replace that election <laughs> equipment down in Coffee County. And Bill, as you were saying earlier, you know, this, this dispute goes back to vulnerabilities that were first exposed in a, in a separate lawsuit identified by an expert witness, a cyber tech expert named Alex Holderman. But as you said, Holderman has seen no evidence of the vulnerabilities that were exploited, any vulnerabilities were exploited to change the outcome of any elections. Well, the other thing about that is that one of the things that struck me in terms of this uh, hearing uh, with uh, Republican senators is this call for paper ballots. We know that uh, paper ballots in the long run are much more liable to be miscounted, to have problems with counting them than the machines themselves, although there are a lot, a lot of people pushing for paper ballots. But Greg, we've heard from state leaders there's not going to be an option for paper ballots in the next election. Haven't we heard that? Uh, the governor has not endorsed it. House leaders have not endorsed it. We have seen Senate Republicans push for it. Something to watch going forward because we are seeing the Senate Republicans push uh, in ways that we have not seen Kemp or Speaker John Burns, who was a guest yesterday, pushed for more more uh, conservative, I guess you'd call it conservative, more extreme conservative changes okay. in Georgia. Okay. And Tia, um, really quickly, uh, we have to always remember that there are politics behind all of these conversations. Right. And that's, you know, the paper ballot thing is one of them. I remember when the state was going to new machines the Republicans are the ones who didn't want hand-marked paper ballots where there were some voting rights organizations who said they would be more transparent and more secure. That was, of course, before 2020 when everything changed. All right. Well, thanks for that. And thanks to everyone who joined us here on Politically Georgia today. If you, our audience, have a question that you want to ask the team here at Politically Georgia, you can call the Politically Georgia call-in hotline now or anytime, actually, leave a question and we'll play it back right here on the show. That number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. We'll play it back on Friday show during our listener mailbag segment. We can't wait to hear from you. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta weekdays at 10 or look for Politically Georgia in your favorite podcast app sometime around one o'clock each day. If you like what you hear, please leave a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.